This is the Strength Anger Podcast, part of the Berserker Strength Radio Network, featuring APF Illinois State Chairman Eric Stone, as well as AAPF AWPC Powerlifter Robert Bain. We are coming at you from 2XL Powerlifting in Lombard, Illinois, and you can find this podcast online on anchor.fm. Okay, Mr. Bain, here we are, episode 27. Back in the Strength and Anger bunker. Back in the bunker in an undisclosed location. Yes, which I was able the... to tag in, uh, on Instagram on our last uh, last episode. Right, of the Strength and Anger podcast. Uh, Bain, before we get into the topic at hand for the day. And this is, this is a thick topic, like yeah. extra yeah. thick. This is one of the topics that I have wanted to go through ever since we started this podcast, but... Any feedback from past weeks? Uh, yeah, actually, I've gotten uh, specifically a few of the WPO competitors have reached out and said they enjoy the podcast. Uh, the Oliveras, actually, uh, Val and Anthony, uh, said that they, they've enjoyed the podcast and keep going and had a great little quick conversation with him uh, on the Facebooks. But, yeah, so lots of just people going through the, the archives. They've obviously got a lot of time on their hands right now, and so people are enjoying the history lesson and, uh, you know, obviously some of the current events we've been doing as well. They, uh, they like our the yin and yang of our takes on things. Sure. Yeah, I got some feedback from some folks. Uh, I guess they sent us both a, a message yes. on the on the Instas Yes. and sent us an article, which actually we reference Today. in this week's episode. We do. Um, there's a number of good uh, good articles from Jan, Todd, and crew on their yes. Iron Game history. I don't know that I always agree with their conclusions yeah but i like put some of that into our notes today but i like their historical look at things i mean jan todd's been around for a long time and her her husband terry todd Mm -hmm. so yeah they they seem to have access to a just a large archive of strength history and so i think they're they are a valuable resource i agree with you though i don't always see eye to eye with their opinions on things sure and other than that bane what is going on uh, still work from home, uh, really has started training at home, uh, with a little more earnest. I did uh, a bunch of body weight stuff this week, uh, taking my 10 minute brisk walks, uh, per stand efforting. And I actually just, uh, actually before we uh, came here, uh, went and grabbed some, uh, equipment from Mikey cell at MSNP here in uh, West Chicago and going to be, uh, you know, doing a little more heavier stuff just cause I need it. Cause body weight stuff sucks. Uh, my wife actually thought that I was uh, having an episode because <laughs> she heard me breathing so hard in the living room. Because uh, doing crunches, I usually can't breathe. So uh, that's uh, that's really what's been going on with me. Uh, Stone, what's going on with you? Well, uh, I've as I mentioned last week, I've been able to dive into my video game collection that I haven't been able to have really time to do. Yeah, um, I'm gonna put a good every day is thumb day. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I haven't done any training at home. I just can't get motivated to do body weight shit. Yeah. Um, I could come here in the gym and use it, but I feel bad since my members can't use it. It's fair. So I have been in here a couple times but have not trained. Um, but I'll put a good uh, plug if you're looking for something to do and you have an old system, uh, an old uh, Game Boy that would play it, or if you could download it on the virtual console. Emulators. Or, yeah, just steal it on an emulator probably is probably the easiest way if you're smart enough to know how to do that, but... Donkey Kong from Game Boy from 1994 is an excellent game. Um, takes the original arcade Donkey Kong mm-hmm. and then expands it into kind of a puzzle platformer. So, I, you know, I don't, I didn't really want to find a video game that was like super in depth that I had to put a lot of 
thought and effort. I like something sure. where I can just kind of zone out and just, right, you know, do something that takes my mind off everything going on, and that has fit the bill. Nice. I love it, man. Well, hopefully we can, uh, once this is all over, we can get some uh, Super Smash Brothers going amongst uh, Team Stone. It'd be kind of fun. It's funny you mention that because I just bought a second cartridge yes. of Super Smash Brothers for 3DS so that my son and I could uh, face off against each other. I because love it. Unfortunately, that's one of the games that you need two different 3DSs and two different cartridges to do two-player. Interesting. So who, who's your character? I don't know because it's been so long since I've played it. Gotcha. I don't know that I've ever played my son's 3DS version. Okay. I've only played N64. I think at that time it was Donkey Kong. All right. Pikachu is my guy, so we might have to throw oh. down. Okay. Okay. Right. I love it. Uh, Bane, what is great? You know, what is great right now with all this extra time I've had on my hands uh, there actually, there were two things I wanted to write down. Uh, my wife and I have gotten to take daily walks together over the last, you know, two weeks. And that's been actually really, really nice. Uh, Nick and I didn't have like the most traditional type of early relationship and courtship. And so we didn't do this kind of stuff. So now we're getting to do that. It's actually been really fun. Uh, and then I've also been started to experiment in the kitchen again. Uh, you know, prior to me getting into logistics, I worked in the restaurant business, specifically in the back of the house. And I really, really enjoy cooking, so I'm really getting to dive back into that. Aside from just food being fuel, actually having fun with it and experimenting and having, uh, you know, food be uh, a little more of the art piece that I uh, that I used to enjoy. So, really, really cool to start doing that. Stone, what is great for you? Well, before I, I go into that, I, maybe I'll uh, I'll get a few tips from you. I was told by my wife, mm -hmm. whose birthday will probably be about the time that we release this, March 30th. Yeah. Uh, she told me that I needed to make her dinner for her birthday. Ah. And I said, I can't make anything. But <laughs> I eventually relented and said, I will attempt to make something. Um, I mean, so maybe I'll get some tips from Bane. Ken, Ken Stone's got that Rectech drip. Yeah, well, I don't have a Rectech. Well, he can always bring it over, silly. He's not going to bring his entire Rectech over. Well, he can bring the food over. Sure, he could. He so could. But that go. wouldn't really be me making the food. Um, so what is great is, uh, you know, there's been a couple... You know, kind of feel-good stories out there yeah. in the powerlifting world specifically. Both Rogue and Titan support systems mm -hmm. have both kind of switched gears given the <laughs> current uh, medical, you know, crisis in this country. Mm -hmm. And Titan is making mass using, it looks like, some of their singlet material. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure what Rogue is making, but they said they've switched gears to... I think it was parts for ventilators. Yeah. I think it was. It was whatever they could cast, basically. Yeah, probably using their same kind of you know metal manufacturing yeah. that they were doing before. But it's cool to see powerlifting companies, you know, not only, I'm not going to say taking advantage, but, you know, looking at what the current climate and the economics is and say, hey, if we can both help out... Um, People who don't have the right supplies, A, and B, while, you know, especially... And stay in business. <laughs> and stay in business. And, you know, we think about Titan. How many people are buying squat suits and bench shirts right now? Probably not a lot. Probably not as many, Although yeah. Rogue is probably doing just fine on the home equipment end. In fact, I saw that they had to shut down online orders for 24 hours just to catch up. Yeah. I saw... Um so Peloton, you know, is kind of one of the big, hot, up-and-coming type home workout things. Yeah. Uh, I have seven-month wait right now. Wow, that's crazy. That's insane. So, anyways, we will move on to the Pulsa throwback. Yes. And I picked a good one today, man. There's, there's just a ton. Love it. Just a ton of, of you not, know. We, not ads? <laughs> um, there's some ads, but not as much as the later years. This is from August 2007. All right. Um, what were you doing in August 2007? Hmm. Good question. 
Um, 13 years ago now. I would have been kind of in my first year of working at Velocity Sports Performance. All right. Awesome. Um, no kids. Team Stone was just kind of starting up. Yeah. Were you and Jackie married or just dating? Yeah, we were married. Okay. We were married in 06. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, just kind of starting out in my professional career at that time. Nice. Awesome. Uh, How about you, Bane? August 2007, we were still in Iowa. Uh, Nick and I would have been married for... Yeah, a little over two years, so we had Lily. Um, you know, Nolan was not quite thought of yet, so we just, you know, the typical American family, husband, wife, and boy and a girl, and no animals at that point, but uh, still working the restaurant business and still playing soccer, actually, so I was probably, you know, a much, much leaner vein than you guys see now. Sure. Uh, when you had the first couple kids, was the thought to have many more, or was it like, eh, we're kind of good with two, and then it just... You know, stuff happens. So that's a great question. People have asked us that actually a lot lately. Uh, I would say over the last probably two years, people have asked that a lot. Uh, you know, did we always plan on? We actually, from the time Nick and I got married, and or actually I would say probably about six months prior to us getting married, uh, we moved up our wedding date, uh, and we kind of just always started talking about having four kids. Like for whatever reason, that felt like a complete family for us. And then after Nolan was born, we, you know, we kind of waffled back and forth. There's a whole story behind that. Uh, I'll tell you, tell people in person if they ever asked me about it. But uh, then after Ella was born, that's when we both like, yeah, family's, family's complete. Like it, it, no, after Nolan was born, we just didn't feel 100% that the family was done. And yeah, we just always had talked about having four kids. I think we're just crazy that way. Okay. So we will move on COVID. to... Oh, yeah, COVID, Jesus. Uh, so we'll move on to the Powerlifting USA. We've got on the cover, we've got Rob Leondo okay. with a 903 bench at 242. And that was a cut to get for him to get down to 242, I can tell you, because he was at many different times, he was a thick man. He's a semi-local guy, Rob mm-hmm. Leondo. He's from... I've heard the name. Yeah, he's uh, he used to go out, I think he lives, I can't remember exactly where he lives uh, but I know he used to drive out to train with Bill Carpenter in Dubuque, Iowa for mm. many years and gotcha. kind of went on his own, had his own setup in his own basically garage, was a big time bencher. Um, he had done some of our meets back in the early years. I think he's pretty much retired now, but he did some huge benching. Mm-hmm. Um, huge. Ryan Canelli also on the cover with a 986 bench and a 1036 bench, probably changed in the in the, you know, just in the time period of releasing the magazine. Wow. Um, he was a big-time bencher uh, back in the days when bench, big-shirted benching was big. Yeah. And I know spent some time perhaps behind bars. No. Oh. And is now back, uh, you know, at least training again on, on the Instagrams. So not under bars behind them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, some interesting articles I thought this week. We had one on Mike Wolf, who's a guy we both probably know. Um, he's trained at Westside. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to the last two years do our pressing the pieces together uh, bench press womp, womp. Uh, benefit for autism and has not been able to. Um, but he's got a I'm not I'm not 100% sure what his best shirted bench, but it's over 800. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago about him benching 600 or 650 at the uh, the NURB mm-hmm. raw. So he's he's a guy who's both done big benches raw and equipped. Um, and this was a pretty interesting article talking about it was basically a flexible dieting kind of approach where, you know, because he was on the move so much, he was able to, you know, do some fast food, but stay within his macros. Mm-hmm. Um, so some interesting stuff there. 
Um, we had an article on APF Senior Nationals from 2007, okay. and it was particularly interesting because the numbers were way, way down from the previous two years. As far as attendance and, yes. and the actual like totals? The totals were still pretty big, but nothing like the numbers of lifters you had in 06 that we talked about, and definitely nothing like the one in 05. Mm. This is about the time that um, the WPO was booted out from the Arnold Classic, mm. And there was some issues at that seniors in 06, from what I remember. I wasn't there, but I had heard that as far as the actual running of the meet, it wasn't perhaps optimal. Mm. Um, so you went from you know having multiple flights for one weight class. And if you haven't listened to previous episodes, senior nationals at the time was basically the big dog nationals. It was only yeah. open at that time. All the APF, well, the APF might have had raw by then, but this meet was only open. It was only multiply equipped. Only APF, non-tested, so it was just weight classes. Yeah, this, this was like the the equivalent of what Big Dogs is. Like, it's just everybody who's everybody is going to be there. Yeah, and it was just, you know, placing via weight classes. Yep. Um, we had a, an interesting article from our guy Louie, and this is just such a Louie article. About rack work. Yeah, you know, he talks about rack work, and I, I read it a couple times, and at one point in the article he says, we did our deadlifts three ways, and then he goes on to list one way, and then he never lists, really lists the other two ways. Like he says, you know, he did lifts from the floor with bands, and then he talks about the different deadlifts from racks, but I, that was really the only two ways, unless he counted the different rack positions as different ways. Well, it's because you're not listening, Eric, and that's why he didn't see all three ways. Well, I wrote them all in there. Or ironically, he, he first says the first way we do it is deadlifts from the floor with bands, and then goes on to list all the people that, you know, deadlift from the floor with bands <laughs> and what they had done. Very Louisish. And then he starts talking about different pin heights and rack work, but he never came back to it. And the second way is, and the third way is, so it just he just kind of trailed off. So, so pin heights kind of is the second way, right? But then he listed pin pin height one, two, and three. So it's really so four, it's four ways. ways. Okay. I don't know. It was some interesting stuff on you know why they do rack L- work. Louis only counts by forty fives anyway. So. Um, we also had an article in APC Nationals, which is probably not a federation. That the alphabet is, soup continues. Um, this is probably even an, an entire episode in and of itself. But the APC was the American Powerlifting Committee. Okay. Uh, a local guy, Jim Rausch, who was a big-time referee with the APF and friends with Ernie Franz, along with his cohort, L.B. Baker from More Georgia. Soup. Right. Uh, L.B. Baker from Georgia, um, at one time were big-time referees in the APF and even refereed at the WPO. Okay. Um, it was around 2002 when I really got started going to bigger meets that mm-hmm. L.B. Baker and Jim Roush had their split with Karen Kidder and Ernie Franz. At one point, L.B. Baker registered the domain name AmericanPowerliftingFederation.com. Fucker. He claimed to have control of the APF, and this was around the time, again, that Ernie sold the Mm -hmm. WPC to Karen Kidder, and some people, obviously including LB, were upset about that. I'm not exactly sure what. I don't know what happened between, because at one point, LB, Roush, and Karen Kidder were, you know, thick as thieves, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, you know, LB's on his own. Dude, uh, I texted you this week, like, reading through some of the stuff, getting ready for this, this episode. Powerlifting egos create so many weird fucking stories. Well, and I can't even track what's happened. Right. The APC was birthed out of that. At one point, L.B. Baker claimed to have control of the APF Mm -hmm. and the AAPF and AWPC, 
and the world meet that he threw, I think it was 03 that mm-hmm. I went to in Georgia. You know, he never turned the results in to um, fake meet. Yeah, it was. And then at one point, he and a bunch of others formerly from the WPC formed the World Powerlifting Committee, WPC, because they didn't want to have to change any of their insignias. Kieran Kidder took them to court. Of at, course. At one of their meets. And, you know, they claimed they weren't forced to, but they just, quote, voluntarily decided to change their name to Global Powerlifting Committee. Voluntarily. GPC. Mandatorily. At some point, then, L.B. Baker was booted out of the GPC or left the GPC. There's also a local group around here that's kind of smallish, the World United Amateur Powerlifting WU. I, I, there's so many letters I can't so are, keep track of. Are we of. just like, we've got them on a dartboard and we start throwing them, all right, what can we do with these? Because well, LB split from them and now he has his own other smaller organizations. I was looking on his website. There was the IPO and GPA. It, it's hard to keep track of, but it, it, the, the APC Nationals reminded me of that whole thing. Jeez. And I was, you know, I would say fairly uh, active on the old message boards at that time. Mm-hmm. And LB Baker was not a fan of mine because every time he would post something, I'd say, no, that's wrong. You have nothing to do with say, the, say it right, Eric. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> you have nothing to do with the APF. And I remember Maris Sternberg and Amy Jackson and Ernie Franz had to put out things in Powerlifting USA and online and say the only true APF WPC comes out of Aurora, Illinois. Anybody else is just an imposter. It's and fake is, news. It is literally fake news. Nope. And you know he had some points at that time, like, well, you know, what were these things voted on? And I. I all these things that he said were being operated incorrectly. And I said, sure, maybe some good points there, but what does that give you the right then to say you have control of the organization? Right. It's like, well, maybe things weren't voted on properly, but who voted LB Baker head yeah. of all of it? Sorry, pound bigger. <laughs> and somebody asked him once, like, what is your actual first name? And he said, my first name is LB. Like, are you saying LB doesn't stand for something like Larry, Larry Brown? Or I mean, I know what I want to say. I don't know this man personally. Uh, he doesn't get along with you, so I'll say it's a little bitch baker. Is that what it stands for or what? <laughs> it's probably we'll never get to it. It's funny it because does, I don't think LB Baker and the APC, which he runs, put the two together that 2XL powerlifting is run by Eric Stone mm. because then he was going around probably messaging every powerlifting gym he could find on Facebook and saying, the APC is looking for meat directors. And I said, <laughs> thanks, we're, we're just fine with the APF. <laughs> funny uh we've also got in this issue we've got the top 50 benches okay of all time 114 men and 97 pound females 114 men that seems like an oxymoron uh and if you look at the pictures <laughs> in the issue most of the people most of the men in here especially are little people and i don't mean that mean but it just most They're people just... in here are little people yeah you've got uh mike booker who is number one with a 360 bench at 114. Wow. And the female side, you've got Cosette Fernandez Neely. Oh, nice. And this was in Wobble. And yeah, we know Cosette. We do. And this was a 215 bench. I don't think she competes at one or 97 anymore. I don't think so. I think she's a 123. She might even be heavier than that. But I, I'm not sure. But at this time, she, this was in Wobble, the World Association of Bench Pressers and Deadlifters. Um, Judy, Judy Gedney is someone that we. Uh, we talked about it previous week. She had a one six seventy bench, which was number nine on the on the list. Nice. So, some interesting uh, interesting stuff in here, historically, and some people that we know. Awesome. 
We've also got uh, the 2007 APF Junior Nationals, which I ran, mm-hmm. and we talked about Senior Nationals. Mm-hmm. At the time, there was also a secondary meet, going back to kind of the weightlifting, you know, roots of powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, juniors was didn't refer to the age group, but rather referred to the level of the meet. There was Junior Nationals for people who had not won at Seniors, mm-hmm. um, but had hit the qualifying total. So I ran, it didn't always run, but I said, hey, you know, I'd like to revive that meet and ran it in 2007. Um, Al Kaslaw was a very big lifter for a while. Mm-hmm. Funny story, um, he was weighing in and Jackie was taking his openers and he gave his openers in kilos, which was very high. It was like 700 plus pounds and he was a 165er. Jeez. And Jackie's like, are you sure that's in kilos? And uh, he even questioned himself. Like He's like, I think so, because he had one of the highest openers in the meet. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually she said, okay, yeah. we'll see how it goes tomorrow. Yeah. And sure enough, she didn't, I don't think any of us realized what a big time lifter he was or would become mm-hmm. in that time frame. But yeah, he, he squatted, I think, well over 700 at, at 165 and won best lifter lightweight. Mike White, who was at one time the Michigan state chair for the APF. At one time. Um, and squatted 1,000 this meet, but attempted. I think it was 1,100 twice. Wow. And he fell backwards on each attempt at least two to three times oh, right into Detman's arms. And Detman... After, which, there's, which there's worse places to be. Right. And this was a big Detman. This was a 300-plus-pound Detman. Yeah, it's a unit Detman. And I had specifically asked Detman if he would backspot at this meet because I knew there'd be some big lifters. Yeah. And after his opener, which he barely got, as I remember... I mean, he got it. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't the most, you know easily looking a thousand pound squat we've ever seen right detman said just looked at me before the guy went up there to try low and just shook his head <laughs> and, i can see detman doing that he, dude i think detman just knew he was gonna just he just <laughs> stood up right back into detman two three times in a row well i mean detman hugs are nice i, I would probably do stuff like that too just get a detman hug so interestingly um we're going to talk about ernie franz a lot this mm-hmm. week but there's a letter from ernie in this magazine talking about how he was mad about uh what was happening in the APF and WPC. Mm-hmm. This was when him and Karen kind of had their falling out, one of their falling outs. Of course. And Ernie said he was starting the American Franz Powerlifting Federation and the Amateur American Franz Powerlifting Federation. And there was a lot of talk about Credo, which was kind of this, he wanted to make into this, like this youth program for mm-hmm. disadvantaged youth, which kind of makes sense in Aurora. Sure. Um, Jack and I were reminiscing about this because... Our other coach, Maris Sternberg, claimed to come up with the name Credo, mm-hmm. and then Ernie claimed he came up with it. Maris, uh, and I don't remember what Credo stands for. It was like, you know, it was something about like courage and responsibility and education, and I don't remember what all the letters, but each of the letters stood for something. And Maris deadlifting said, and other stuff. Yeah, deadlifting other stuff. Right. Maris <laughs> claimed she mailed it to herself. Um, what Credo stood for, and she said that was a way to copyright something if you if you sent it through the mail i guess that was her way and so she said she had copyright and it went that again seems t- like a wise tale like it's not how you do copywriting we'll have to look that up yeah. she claimed you could just mail something to yourself and you'd copywritten it because all copyright means that it's been published somewhere i guess yeah. that's not like a a trademark or a registered kind of thing yeah. where you have to go to court i'm, I'm gonna say mailing something to yourself does not Costume copyrighted. <laughs> well, uh, that's what Maris claimed. And then there was talk of there might be a lawsuit between Ernie and Maris. Of course. Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Man. Like, I hear this, and it's like, for all 
we always talk about, like you, you know, the powerlifting community in general, big, tough humans, blah, blah, blah. And I, I would say I see this quite a bit where you get a lot of the, you know, catch me outside, how about that type attitudes. All I see are fucking lawsuits <laughs> between these people. Could just be because the last two weeks all we've talked about is lawsuits. It's what it feels like, man. I'm telling you. I did talk to Ernie um, yesterday How's on the doing? phone. He's doing okay. He's recovering from, you know, various health ailments. Yep. And he's, you know, obviously staying at home given everything going on. Yeah. He's excited to come check out the new gym when he's able to. And um, we're going to take some of his old memorabilia and create eventually like a little Ernie, Ernie Franz Shrine Hall of Fame nice. area. Um, Amy Jackson's already started to bring us some of his stuff. Love it. So he was excited about that. He's glad that somebody's going to do something with it because he said, you know, in my house, it's just collecting dust. And if nobody takes it, it'll eventually be lost, which you know, yeah, I think please. he realizes yeah, once, we, we don't want that. once he passes on that probably it'll all get tossed Yeah, because you know, a lot of people won't know what it is. You know, he's got tons of trophies and memorabilia and pictures. Yes, um, he has got a, he has got a lot of pictures. Yeah. Um, he's got pictures of him with celebrities and old meets. He did a really nice job back in the day of, you know, taking actual pictures and then printing them. Yeah. Well, that was a thing back then. Yeah. Um, but an interesting letter from Ernie, especially given that we talked about the APC mm-hmm. and, you know, what we talked about the previous week with the IPF. Um, yes, Ernie tried to start his own organization. I've ever told the EPF story. Oh, God, another one. <laughs> Uh, have I not told this story <laughs> no, on the podcast before? Okay, so not. it was around this time that I was training at Franz, mm-hmm. and Ernie had this all written out on two yellow legal pads, and this was when he was again pissed off at Karen Kidder, who he had sold the WPC to, mm-hmm. um, and he was going to start Eric's Powerlifting Federation with me. Oh, and he had this all <laughs> written out on two <laughs> two yellow legal pads, and he was he was dead serious. He wanted me and him to start our own organization, and you know EPF er, Eric's Powerlifting Federation easily changed to Ernie's, Ernie's Powerlifting, Powerlifting Federation. Federation. Yeah, so when he gets mad at you, that's what happens. <laughs> and I was like, Ernie, you know what? I really just don't want to start my own powerlifting organization. I like the APF. I'll continue to support you, but I really would rather just you know be a, a cog in the wheel and not. You know, not the wheel itself. Yeah. So, yes, there's more to that story. No, but No more alphabet soup, Eric, please. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to contribute to any more of the alphabet <laughs> soup. The top 275s from April 06 to May 07, we've got the man, Chuck Volgapol, on top with Chuck 1150. V. That might be his best squad ever. I'm not sure. Um, a guy we've not talked about, but a southern guy who's, you know, hit some big lifts back in the day, Charles Bailey, mm-hmm. number two with a 1080 bench. Um, we've got Dave Hoff down at number 10 with a 960 squat. So this is in his early years. Um, God, he's added 310 pounds to his squat. Yeah. That's crazy. You've got on bench, you've got on top, you've got an 850 bench from only list Franco. I guess he's like Madonna, only has one name. Mm. I'm not familiar with that. Franco Colombo? Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> um, but you've got John Zemin, who is a big guy from Michigan with an 843 at number two. You've got M. Griffin, number one in the deadlift with 821. Mm. Chuck V, number two with 820. Wow. Chipped him. Uh, You've got Scott Yard, who's a guy we've not talked about much. He's an interesting guy because he had a big time, you know, uh, run at Equipped. Obviously, totaled 2605. Oh, wow. Which is a big total. Chuck Vogelpohl tied, number, or yeah, tied with uh, also 2605. Um, a guy we know well, Jim Grandick, mm-hmm. um, our Nebraska state chair for the APF, 2,600. The aforementioned Charles Bailey, below that, with 2,430. Um, a guy we all know now is number nine, Matt Wenning, 2,336. At real Matt Wenning? 
Yep. Uh, Dave Hoff down at number 12 with a 2315 total. And now he has totaled 3100. 3, yeah. This is back in 06, 07. Uh, but Scott Yard had a big run equipped, and then he was a lead FTS sponsor guy and then decided to switch everything over and did raw. And, you know, his hmm. numbers took a big hit, but, you know, give him some credit for for trying and doing something different. Yeah. But uh, he was very critical of geared lifting after he left it. But, you know, he mm. was a big guy in geared lifting at the time. So pretty interesting that he's on top in this interesting. Uh, this uh, issue. Seems bitter. That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's dive into something, Bane, that uh, is probably... This has got to be near and dear to your heart as this a is, bench-only guy. <laughs> this is probably the most research I've ever done for an episode. Oh, 100%. I mean, I and not only of the stuff that we've got, we're going to go through today, but I also called I called Amy Jackson, who was involved, the mm-hmm. APF secretary, who was also the Franz secretary. Um, I called and talked to the man, Ernie Franz. At his age, some of these details are not super clear, sure. so I wasn't able to get a ton on the details more than I had. Talked to Dick Zenzen, who gave me some interesting anecdotes. <laughs> Talked to Ricky Del Crane, owner of Crane's Muscle World, and who you know was definitely around and has a very astute memory of what, what went on back then. He would actually be an excellent guy to have on the podcast because he's yeah. got as much historical you know, background as anybody who's still alive that was around back in the beginning of the sport. Yeah, I mean, you reference him a ton. I think it'd be awesome to have him on sometime. <laughs> so sources, other than those, uh, you know, individual conversations, we've got another article from the Todd group, Jan and Terry Todd, mm-hmm. um, also Dominic Morales and Ben Pollock. Mm-hmm. Um, they did an article called Shifting Gear, a Historical Analysis of the Use of Supportive Apparel and Powerlifting. And this was an all-encompassing article. It wasn't just about bench shirts, but they, there was, you know, there's a lot of information in this article. I think it's a, if you're interested in the history of the sport, I think it's an important one to read because uh, it's just, it's a lot of, there is a lot of information. They cite a lot of stuff. My take on it when I'm reading this thing was, it was like subtle raw propaganda because there are a couple of lines in the article. Again, it, it, I said in our notes here, acknowledges the history of gear in the sport, you know, cause that really was all there was for, you know, a couple of decades, right. Was just single ply or the equivalent of, and then, you know, it was multiply kind of made its rise. Uh, but a couple of times it essentially says it's cheating. Uh, you're not as strong as the gear makes you. I mean, it, it that's actually one of the lines directly in the article. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting. This is from 2015. So mm-hmm. something more recent than the last article we had from them. Um, but yeah, they have a lot of history in there, and they, yeah, they definitely take the hypothesis that gear has been a divisive negative on the sport. I yes. would say yes. Um, but again, I, I enjoy their history. It's all collusion. Um, it's all propaganda. Yeah, I don't agree with uh, their conclusions, but you know, we took some some pieces out from there. Yep. Um, some of which I'm not sure is 100 percent true. And in talking with Ricky Dale Crane, you know, he said he knows both the Tods and says, you know, at times, you know, maybe some of the people that they reference you know, aren't as spot on as they would like to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this is all hearsay. But, but they play into the narrative, and so it works Sure. Um, I also looked up the actual patent, um, and what we're going to talk about today is Inzer versus Franz, the lawsuit on the bench press shirt. Yeah, the, the 908 patent, I think I, there's a good reference throughout a lot of these articles, which is the 908 patent. Yeah, we looked up the 1982 patent. If you want to look it up yourself, it's... 
four comma four seven three comma zero nine eight. Uh, nine oh eight. Zero nine eight. They kept calling it the nine oh eight patent. Okay. Well, we'll check we'll, on that. We'll, we'll verify that. Yeah. Perhaps I transcribe my numbers, which I've been known to do. Um, but nonetheless, I, I actually posted a screenshot of the patent itself the other day. Actually, <laughs> yes, I've got the patent printed out here, so I got to look it up. Yeah, we can look it up real quick. Uh, See you are right. I did transcribe the numbers. All's it is good. 908. All's good. So, yeah, they, they referenced the 908 patent quite often. Yeah. Um, I was not able to get the original lawsuits between Enzer and Franz, but mm-hmm. I was able to get the 2002 court ruling and the 2003 court ruling, which essentially referenced and took the highlights of former court rulings mm-hmm. um, and basically gave us everything we probably were, were going to get without talking to the only person who could fill in some of the gaps we're gonna, would be John Enzer himself. Yeah. Because Ernie Franz doesn't really remember. And I'm sure, like John doesn't remember a ton either. Uh, I think he probably remembers most of this if I had to make a guess. <laughs> but uh, anyways, so we're going to cover the lawsuit of – uh, Inzer versus Franz mm-hmm. on the origins of the bench press shirt. So, you know, let's go through a timeline. Uh, starting with Ricky Del Crane says Mike McDonald had the quote first bench shirt in the late 70s and said it was really just a tight t shirt. So he says tight t shirt. Does he mean like like the Under Armour style, like the compression shirt? Like sure. It's kind of something like that. So. Yeah, but bear in mind that type of material wasn't around back then, sure. like an Under Armour shirt. So sure. it was probably a, just a tight polyester shirt. Yeah. And according to Ricky Crane, none of these shirts at that time really did much of anything. It would kind of be like, have you ever seen anybody wear um, an erector shirt from Enzer? No. Yeah, it, it's something that they sell that supposedly helps keep you upright. Hmm. Um, it's Hence a, the erector name. Right. It's, it's essentially like a tight, closed-back bench shirt with very short sleeves. Or sometimes um, you'll see them, you can have it short sleeves or you could have it sleeveless. Hmm. And there's only one guy that I see ever wearing it, Scott Kuderick from Michigan, okay. who's famous for other reasons in the yeah. powerlifting community, which yeah. we won't discuss today. Yeah. Uh, but I've seen him wearing that erector shirt. Essentially, just keeps you tight, supposedly helps keep you upright. That's essentially what they probably were back then. Um, in the Shifting Gears article, they said the first Powerlifting USA advertisement was in February of 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, they also claimed that Enzer began marketing and they said marketing his innovative shirt design in 1973. Mm. Uh, that has to be a typo. It, maybe it's 1983, and they because that that's the only time they mentioned the date. Because according to Crane, you know John Enzer would have been like 12 years old in 1973 and wasn't even in the sport yet. Yeah, that cause I I mentioned it here too. Like you know, is it possible he was experimenting at that time? Nah, it's got to be a typo. If he's only 12. Yeah, according to and again, this is according to Crane. So I I, I didn't call anybody from Enzer directly because I didn't know that they'd want to talk about old lawsuits. Yeah. Um, and John Enzer himself is fairly hard to get a hold of mm-hmm. um, unless you're kind of, you know, someone that's close with them. But Or the IPF. <laughs> right. Uh, according to Crane, Enzer didn't even start his business until at least at the earliest 1980 or 1981. Okay. Um, and I don't even think Enzer claimed that he had a bench shirt back in 1973. So uh, that has to be a typo. I'm guessing it, they meant it to be 1983. Or, or I wonder if they were referencing McDonald and then just put Inzer in there because they couldn't verify it. Could be. Could yeah. be. Anyway. Um, from there, uh, somewhat unrelated, but in June 8th, 1982, uh, Gabriel Connect. How do you say that last name? It's like, it looks like Connect or Necked. Necked. Connect or Necked. Gabriel Connect yep. filed a patent. And I'm going to read directly from it. It is under the type of patent, garment, mm-hmm. 
quote, arms position at an angle substantially forward, ranging between 18 degree and about 45 degree. The central axis of the sleeves are naturally positioned forward of the lateral plane of the body, rather than with the conventional fitted position placement in the lateral plane. Oh, conventional and sumo shirt. Got it. Now I understand. So, so for, all you, for all you raw guys, that's how you figure it out. Essentially what uh, Gabriel Connect or Necked patented was a forward-pointing sleeved shirt. That, so that's one of the things I was trying to understand. Who is Gabriel Connect? Like, do you have any background? Yeah, yes, uh, okay. a little bit. Um, it's basically a fashion designer from New York. Okay. I don't know that they were super famous, but, you know, known in the fashion community. Sure. And if you read through the patent, um, they, and it's funny because other people I've talked to refer, reference this loss, or reference this patent mm-hmm. as a spacesuit shirt. Hmm. It is like the position of arms on spacesuits is referenced in the patent, but really the patent revolves around the angle of the sleeves being forward rather than directly to the side as in a standard shirt. And this was basically a fashion patent. Now, there is some mention of potential other use in sports. Uh, the word bench does not appear anywhere in the patent. The no. word weightlifting does not appear anywhere in the patent. Right. So this patent was really mostly a fashion patent. It's called fashion, Eric. You wouldn't understand. I definitely wouldn't understand. <laughs> but that is essentially um, what this patent is. And, and we might post a link to it. But, I mean, it goes into very deep detail on the angle of sleeves and the position of the armpit. Yeah, on, the, um, yeah, on this one, I stayed at the top with just the basics of what, what it was for. Uh, I did not dive as deep in on on the patent itself. I stuck with the lawsuits and with the shifting gear article. I mean, but that's the that's that's the the long and short of it. Yeah. It's, it's forward pointing sleeves and T- the patent. TLDR. Yeah, the patent is accepted on October second, nineteen eighty four. The way patents work, or at least the way this type of patent worked, um, you get twenty years from the date of the filing of your patent. So June eighth, two thousand two, is when this patent expires. Wow. Inzer claims that he had the first invented true bent shirt around 1985 to 1986. Okay. Um, and what made this different than the previous designs was that it did have forward pointing sleeves. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talked with Ernie Franz about it, he said, you know, you have to have, if you want a bent shirt to be anything, it has to have forward pointing sleeves so that you can have that stretch of the shirt when mm-hmm. you bring it down. Otherwise, you know, it basically means nothing. Right. It doesn't do anything. It's like, you know, an erector shirt like we talked about. Right. Um, Ernie Franz himself claims you invented the first bench shirt, or, you know, perhaps he said maybe Inzer and I were creating it at the same time. Around, He didn't have a date. He said around the mid-'80s. This is actually when I talked to him back in the day. So, so Edison Tesla style, where they're basically working congruently and either don't know it or do, and it's a race. It, it's very possible. Um, now, he, he at one point told me, um, I, I, I miss mispronounced or miswrote here mm-hmm. he told me at first back in the day that he had a bench suit mm. that he made which was a shirt built into a suit that was almost like an all-in-one that you could wear squat bench and deadlift what the fuck yeah and i've never seen one of these but maris sternberg confirmed that he had experimented with something that could be used on all three lifts and i'm not sure it gave you too much on the bench but this was the fr- and it was like all denim as well it was like a denim you know so those are called overalls <laughs> It had a sh- no. It had a shirt built into it. Though. Oh my word! So that's what Ernie told me he had first was a bench suit. Um, it, it's it's unclear um, based on the timeline when John Enzer and Enzer Advanced Design um, 
gained this, quote, exclusive license of the aforementioned patent 908. Mm -hmm. But at some point, after it had been accepted, uh, Inzer had an exclusive license on this patent. And I'm not going to reveal, you know, the, the private details of what I was told, but I've been told it was not for a huge amount of money. Mm. Now, to be fair to John Enzer or Enzer Advanced Designs, you know, you've got this fashion patent that probably wasn't really being used. Have you ever seen a fashion shirt with forward pointing sleeves? I I cannot say I have, no. Yeah. So it probably wasn't being used. It was probably just an idea that Necht had and said, hey, I think this would be a cool idea. Went and patented it. It never really took off in the fashion industry because people like regular sleeves. Right. Um, and so according to the, the Shifting Gears article, when Inzer went himself to patent this design for the bed shirt and the Ford pointing sleeves, mm-hmm. he had his lawyers do a patent search and found that someone had already patented a shirt with Ford pointing sleeves. So basically he negotiated well, like, hey, you're not using it. Here's some cash. Here you go. Exactly. And he negotiated an exclusive license for this patent, which... Again, according to the Shifting Gears article, he was going to have a similar type of patent, which mm-hmm. patented Ford pointing sleeves. Um, Titan's Pete Alanis said that he had his own venture design they were starting to experiment with around the 80s, is mm-hmm. what he said. Right. Um, but when it was revealed that Inzer had you know, taken licensure of this patent, this 908 patent, he decided he didn't want to go to court to fight with Inzer. Right. And they basically sat on their design. Um, they experimented with it, you know, kind of in-house, but did not release it to the public until that 2002 time frame when the patent yeah, so expired. They, they just fully waited on it. Wow. Yeah, he didn't. Well, I think he probably had, because as soon as the patent was up, I can tell you, because I was around back then, mm-hmm. it was a big deal. And Titan is the one that probably took the most advantage of sure. when the patent had expired. And so Inzer didn't try to extend the patent or anything? Or? I don't know that he could. Um, okay. I don't know. Maybe he did. So, so I, and maybe because he had exclusive license and he wasn't the original patenter is why he couldn't do that. Because I, I recall there being, and this is in a totally different industry, um, something about soccer ball bladders that they there was a, a type of patent around them. Uh, and that there was an extension of it, and it ended up lasting another like ten years or something. I, I don't recall all the details on that, but I remember I'm, that as a kid, that, that was a big deal once that ended because then you know, all of a sudden you saw Nike, Adidas, everybody was making balls versus sure. just one uh, one company. I think according to Howard Penrose, I don't know that you could extend patents at okay. this time, and or maybe the, it was the type of patent possibly, yeah, that you know you weren't able to. And I'm sure if Inzer had been able to extend the patent, he probably would. Sure, um, because he really did have a corner on the market on but, bench shirts, but he was a Actually, is a patent lawyer. I should ask him how that works. Yeah. So when I talked to Ricky Crane, he said he had his own bench shirt design around 87. Mm-hmm. He, at the time, did not know that Inzer had taken this patent. Um, it, you know, he just created his own bench shirt, and he said, you know, what was the game changer was when we figured out we needed to have forward-pointing sleeves. Mm-hmm. Um, he claims then he was contacted by Inzer in 88, mm-hmm. and, you know, between the two of them, you know, Crane said, okay, I won't make any bench shirts anymore, quote, in the United States. Yo. But at the same time, he agreed to be a distributor of Inzer's, all of Inzer's gear. And actually, up and even though Crane has made his own suits, mm-hmm. 
even going back then and eventually his own shirts, he has also been a distributor of Enzer's gear, um, which he said has been fairly profitable profitable for him. So Good. he's essentially a, a, a dealer of Enzer's gear, and he sells his own stuff as well. Okay. And so he sold Enzer's bench shirts since, you know, theoretically, and he didn't. He, did, he never sold bench shirts mm-hmm. um, directly. However, <laughs> what Crane did do was he contracted, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pronounce this name right, Susumi Yohida. Mm-hmm. a Japanese IPF official and was big in the IPF mm-hmm. in Asia um, from Japan. And he contracted him to make the Crane Mega Power bench shirts hmm. in Japan. And because Japan is outside U.S. patent law from about 88 until 02. Collusion. <laughs> <laughs> I literally had that in the notes, folks, he, to see all that. He was making uh, the Crane designed adventure crane it was crane's design hmm. and uh yohida was making them in japan and distributing them you could if you really wanted them mm-hmm. you could get them in the u.s it wasn't easy because you had to literally get them from japan right um it was apparently a pretty big you know uh used shirt in asia um apparently in japan lifters would wear them so tight that they like had one time use, right? They would have to cut themselves out of it afterwards because wow. this was a very stretchy material. And so, in order to get the most out of it, and it was a completely closed back shirt. This right. Is, and so, in order to get the most out of it, you really had to wear something so, so, so super tight to get that stretch out of it. Nobody had figured out um, the open back design or what really Titan, you know, popularized when they came out with their Fury and F6 in 2002 was the stretchy back, which. It seems so obvious to us now to have mm-hmm. a closed back shirt with a stretchy back, but at the time, every other bench shirt was the same material all the way around. Oh wow! Guys would, you know, like in the denim bench shirts, guys would like cover themselves in baby powder, and like if you were particularly, you know, uh, claustrophobic, then you know you wouldn't like getting into those tight denim bench shirts nope. with baby powder. Nope. So really, when eventually Titan came out with the stretchy back, and eventually Ernie and others came out with the open back, that mm-hmm. you know kind of really changed how people used bench shirts. Definitely, we'll talk about that more when we get more yeah, into the lawsuit. It's definitely been an evolution over the last twenty, thirty years. It's pretty crazy. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, Crane making his bench shirts in Japan. Mm-hmm. Titan not making any. And as far as I know, at that time, I think Marathon might have gone out of business around that time. That was the other big gear manufacturer. Sure. sure. Um, I don't know that they ever made a bench shirt. Um, people still swear by their deadlift suits. In fact, I have an old marathon deadlift suit that John Smoker gave me that he said he could only fit into at 165 and thought maybe I could use it. Mm-hmm. Eh, I don't think I'm fitting into that anytime soon. <laughs> so if we had a 165 lifter here, I would let them try it because I'm told, and if you feel the material on these old marathon suits, it mm-hmm. is definitely a a way different, like, stiffer almost slick material it, it's very hmm. interesting it's i wonder if we could get like a textile manufacturer to analyze it and see what it actually is yeah because the only thing that's close is that the titan material mm-hmm. um none of the ends materials are like this the tight material is the closest but it's still not quite like the old marathon sure anyways um 1991 okay Enzer versus franz begins <laughs> Enzer versus franz one <laughs> yeah i mean i think it was all just one long lawsuit, it's but so this much. is a patent infringement lawsuit that Ernie or that uh, John Enzer and Enzer Advanced Design files against Franz, mm-hmm. Ernie Franz, and Franz Health Studio. Um, now we couldn't find this document probably because we would have to get like a paper document from the courthouse. Yeah, I'm sure it's never been transcribed to being online. But according to subsequent 
court documents. Um, this lawsuit went on until 1996. So this initial lawsuit five was five years. Five years, and eventually there was a quote consent judgment, which I think basically means that they all agreed on the judgment. Right, right. Like we get it. You did this. I did this, and let's move on with our lives. So finally. Franz had an quote admission of liability. Not which, guilt. You're right, uh, and quote. Infringing claims of the 908 patent, mm-hmm. and specifically from manufacturing, using, selling, or inducing the manufacture, use, sale of, during the term of the patent, the Frange bed shirt. So basically what it said was uh, Franz was no longer allowed to make the bed shirt during the time frame of the patent, mm-hmm. with the exception of this did include a, quote, licensing agreement, but that only lasted until February 28th, 1997. So it was basically like... It's a six-month. Six-month extension. Weird. And maybe the thought was, well, we're already in the middle of making it. And I, I have no idea because we couldn't find these court documents. But mm-hmm. um, they were allowed, Franz Health Studios, Franz Power Gear, was allowed to continue making bench shirts per the consent judgment through February 1997. Um, I wonder if it was to use the rest of the material he'd already ordered, and that was the original thought process behind it. That could be, because I know I used to see it literally be rolls of yeah. polyester and denim that Ernie would have to buy and then cut into bench shirts and squat mm. suits. And Ernie agreed to pay $5 per shirt as a licensing agreement. Okay. Uh, no other, to my knowledge, no other gear company um, was allowed any sort of licensing agreement. <laughs> And no one else did it other than Franz, and obviously it was very contentious as we'll go through. But yep. it is somewhat interesting that, you know, maybe Enzer, kind of like you think back to the, the personal computer wars with Apple and IBM yeah. compatibles. You know, IBM became ubiquitous because they allowed, you know, kind of the clone of that Windows MS-DOS mm-hmm. uh, design to be used elsewhere, and Apple at least up until the mid-90s when personal computers were really super important, mm-hmm. only allowed basically Apple right, to, to use the Mac OS. So yeah. it would be interesting if Fenzer had said, yeah, let me go ahead and let other gear manufacturers license my design. At least I'll get a piece of the action. Um, instead, yeah. he took the, the thought of, nope, uh, no one else makes bench shirts but me. Yeah, he wanted to be king of the hill for whatever reason. So one question that kind of is outstanding is, what happened between 1991 and 1996? I mean, to me, it seems like Aside from the court proceedings, Ernie just kept on selling his shit. That's my guess, and and having been in, you know, a, a lawsuit myself recently, mm-hmm. um, if your defendant shows up to the lawsuit, you know, you can basically just keep each of you filing motions back and forth because when it comes to lawsuits, um, and that's why it doesn't surprise me that this was a quote consent judgment. Mm-hmm. The courts would prefer that lawsuits be settled between the two parties because a lot of times yeah. there's a lot of gray area and it's very difficult for the courts to definitively decide who the winner is. There's a lot of feelings involved too and that's what gets really interesting and awkward. Yeah, and so the courts would rather that they say, okay, here's what we think, but then most lawsuits do not end up going to trial. Most of the time, you know, even with, between big companies, someone will just have a feeling of which way it probably is going to go. Mm-hmm. And they do the calculus of how much legal costs there's going to be yep. and what are potential liability. And most of the time lawsuits are just settled out of court. Right. Um, and, and the other preference too, is it, it usually helps get rid of frivolous lawsuits. Usually. Yes. Right. Because it's so expensive. It is. So after this 
licensing agreement was expired. Mm-hmm. July 3rd, 1997, there was a letter, letter from Enzer de Franz demanding a cease of all sales. Nah, fam. August 19th, 1997, Enzer threatens contempt proceedings and demands $18,000. This at least elicited a response. Yeah, Ernie just didn't respond to the original ones. Yeah. So September 24th, uh, Franz responds and offers that he's you know, in line with the consent judgment and offers 2500 to you know, basically settle. And uh, I don't believe Enzer accepted that. I, I don't think so, no. Yeah. Then, uh, this was probably one of the more interesting things that I had never heard before. On October 1st, 1997, and this so, is... So a week later. Yeah, this is directly from the, the court proceedings. Quote, the defendant not so subtly threatened to bar, and then I'm going to paraphrase, Enzer from being able to have their gear in the APF WPC. Mm-hmm. And that was direct quote, defendant not so subtly threatened to bar. And we didn't we don't have this letter. Yeah. But that's what the court's opinion was. Now, I like not too subtly. Uh, you know, Ernie might have a different view of that mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, but that's uh, that's pretty bold of Ernie to say, well, if you don't... And basically, he, he said, uh, or the court claimed he said in the letter, either you let me continue to license and pay you a $5 fee per shirt, or I'm going to uh, bar Inzer Gear from all APF WPC meets. Very IPF of him to say that. And shortly thereafter, Enzer, quote, dropped the matter. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> take the money and run. Get it. So let's fast forward a little bit. June 1998, Enzer um, was keeping an eye on what was going on. Enzer mm-hmm. um, said he was able to purchase a Franz bench shirt over the Internet, which I, I didn't quite understand why that was an issue, except yeah, for maybe that, um, you know, if Enzer was expecting payments from this quote, licensure agreement, um, and he wasn't getting that. And then sometime around uh, that same time frame, it also said, I don't have this in the notes, but it also said that I think a little bit later, um, you know, Enzer was, saw something on the front's website on mm-hmm. the bench shirt. And so Enzer was keeping an eye on if Ernie was still selling bench shirts and giving him, you know, the the $5 a shirt license. Yeah, I'm wondering if he was, yeah, if he either he stopped getting it or he wasn't getting what he felt was the right amount. Right. It, there's there's probably something in there. Yeah. Um, nothing really happens, though, between, in the courts, mm-hmm. at least between 97 and around even 2002, really, as far as we te- can tell. Yeah. But sometime around 2000 to 2001, mm-hmm. um, going back to our IPF Franz lawsuit from last week. Yep. Ernie Franz hands over the IPF judgment to Enzer. So define what that means, hands it over. It says, hey, we're done with this. Like, I'm not sure because I couldn't find any court proceedings yeah. on this, but essentially uh, I'm sure there was a private agreement on this that basically said that he was giving the rights to the IPF judgment that Franz and conglomerate had over to John Enzer. And as we talked about last week. There's some financial matter in there That somewhere. was a $118,000 judgment yeah. back in 1987. By 2000, 2001, I'm told that it was somewhere in the neighborhood of between two dollars to $300,000. With the interest. With interest accrued. Yeah. Okay. And this was confirmed in the IPF newsletter mm-hmm. um, last week. Yeah, we read that. It's an important one. That's, that's huge because that then reopens the IPF to the to 
doing events here in the U.S. Right, and they had said in the newsletter, we've been out of the U.S. for world meets for 18 years. Yep. The IPF never showed up to the Franz versus USPF IPF mm-hmm. lawsuit proceedings. Lost via default. You could hear all about this in our last week's episode. Yep. But essentially, they lost via default. And then Ernie Franz had a big judgment against the IPF that Maris Sternberg claimed they were ready to show up with federal marshals, shut down the meet, take arrest assets, officials, arrest people. and oh, take, yeah. take assets to enforce their judgment they had against the IPF. Um, no, I'm gonna, what kind of backyard federation is this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this in the rumors category. And, and maybe it's, you know, there's some sense in this, but I don't know if there was fees for gear manufacturers back in 2000, 2001. If they were for the IPF, they were lower, definitely. Yeah. There definitely are now. And oh, we've, yeah, we've, they are. We've seen, gosh, what was it that Pioneer said they were going to be required to pay? It was in the six figures. Mark Bell specifically said when he got his knee sleeves approved, it cost him $250,000. He did like two or three videos on his Instagram about what the equivalent was like and two es- yeah two escalades like like other items like sure it was two escalades it was like one of his houses like it was a bunch of other crap but yeah that he paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars to the IPF God I hate them yeah and there's been uh, there's been rumors that you know because you know what's the value to the IPF on this judgment not only to they mm-hmm. the, the monetary two let's well, let's just average it let's say it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars that they purportedly owe the APF sure. Franz and Maris Sternberg. Sure. So there's that that's taken off. But then by also Enzer, you know, basically limiting that judgment, there's also the potential of growth by having world meets in the United States, as they said, the biggest market in powerlifting. I, I would say it's at least 10x what they they and or Enzer would have put out. Sure. And Enzer did not collect any of that money, from what we understand. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. That's a private agreement between them. But... There's been the rumor mill that because Enzer handed over that lawsuit mm-hmm. um, or, or got rid of that lawsuit, we'll say, yeah. um, that he was exempt for a certain period of time mm-hmm. for paying these uh, approved and, and gear manufacturers. Be. And may still be. And maybe they just said, here's what we think this is worth, and we'll give you that value mm-hmm. in approval fees for the next X number of years. Yep. And maybe the IPF felt that was a good deal. And, you know, you could argue it was a good deal for them. I mean... They built a great platform. The USAPL paid for it. <laughs> uh, so I would have thought that after Ernie handed over, you know, this judgment to Enzer, the IPF judgment, I thought that would have ended the lawsuit. But wait, there's more. And by the way, we talked about earlier, when did that patent that Enzer had a license? It ran out in 2002. 2002, correct. So it hadn't run out yet. So December 2001. But we're getting there. We are getting uh, close. Enzer, again, saw bench shirts for sale on the Franz website. That might have actually been my website because at one point I was going to sell mm. Ernie's gear through ChicagoParlifting.com. So this is your fault. Could be. Nice. I'm sure Enzer would have found his way uh, into that anyways. <laughs> so on December 27th, 2001, Enzer filed a motion for contempt. And this is interesting because he didn't file you know, an additional lawsuit. He basically wanted Ernie to be found in contempt of court. Right. And this, the hearing on this didn't occur until May 15th, 2001. So, so at this time... Three the, weeks before it expires. Yeah. At this point, the patent is almost expired. Right. Um, Inzer apparently was the primary witness for the plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the only witness for the defendant was one Dick Zenzen, local mm-hmm. lifter and yep. you know, former owner of Zenzen Barbell. This is where some of the legal arguments get a little bit more interesting. Because previously, basically, Ernie had admitted, yes, we're, we've, we've basically violated the patent. Yep. And, yes, we're using a forward sleeve design. Now, 
if you talk to Ernie, he would say, I don't think it's right that Enzer is using a fashion patent to restrict bench shirt sales, but... Uh, That's what, neither here nor there. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> you, could, you could argue it's neither here nor there. And, and actually, in this 2002 court document, they said, we are basically not going to evaluate the claims of whether or not yeah. the patent has been infringed because it's already been previously established. Right. And so we're going to go with what Franz agreed to and what the previous courts you know, basically ruled on. Mm-hmm. Um, Franz presented evidence that the open back bench shirt functions, quote, functions differently than the claim design. Which is, you know, really where my understanding of patent law is that's where everything gets real muddy is there's so many things that are very similar, right? Like you have a, a laser jet printer and what the the end outcome of that, that printer or that material or that patent may be, that's where things become materially different. And that's where when I think about this whole thing, I wonder if Ernie says, well, we started doing an open back. I don't know when he started doing open back shirts. It would have been in the late 90s. So it, it, up until you know, for a long time, it was always closed back because originally the APF was following the same rule book as the USPF. Right. And then eventually Ernie decided to allow double ply gear and then started to allow customizations of the gear, like an open back Velcro shirt, right. like the Velcro you know, uh, straps on the suit which so, the IPF never allowed. So at that point, I, I have to wonder, even though it's not in the patent about it being a closed-back shirt, it is a forward uh, sleeves, Ernie has had to say to himself, well, it's a different shirt, it's closed, or it's an open-back, so it's totally different, so therefore it's not infringing. That, that To me, that's where I think maybe his head was at. So Agreed. I, I think you're 100% right. Um, and this is one of the funniest stories <laughs> of this, this whole thing. maybe the greatest day in modern law that I'm aware so, of. And I, I called Dixon's and we talked for an hour and he doesn't remember all the details, but he does remember being a witness in court. And, and then. And so he claimed, you know, Zenzen talked about how the Franz benchers are differently, quote, from the lawsuit. It reloads differently mm-hmm. than a typical bench shirt. Um, he said that he took off his, his dress shirt and tie in the courtroom. Incredible. Put on a denim open back bench shirt. I love it. Stood up on the table to demonstrate how... The Franz denim bed shirt works because the judge was like, I don't really get like what the purpose is. He said, I've read through 65,000 pages <laughs> of court documents and I don't even understand what this does or what this means. <laughs> so Dick Zenzen says, well, in order to demonstrate, it, I'm going to have to like show you. And so he took off his shirt and tie, I just... put on a denim. I mean, could you imagine the average, even the person now, if you took out a, a, a Velcroed back, open back, denim bench shirt, denim made out of jean material, bench just, shirt. I love Dick, but he looks like melted ice cream. And so I just. He was in much better shape back I, I, then. I assume he was because I've heard he was a good lifter. So it just that, that yes, cracks was, me up. So he took off his shirt and tie and put on the bench shirt to demonstrate it. And he was the only witness, um, Inzer, even in court. The court document says that Inzer conceded that George Halbert hey. from Westside Barbell. Mm. Um, he was able to set a new bench press record with an open back shirt. With an open back shirt, you know it's funny. I talked about this in my powerlifting origin story mm-hmm. uh, episode. My first time I found a powerlifting on the internet was GoHeavy.com's message board, mm-hmm. and I remember uh, Tim the peep quote the People's Champion Burner, who was mm. a big Enzer guy, arguing with Jamie Harris, who we've seen have some uh, we'll say online craziness in recent years. Oh boy, argue about. Which bench shirt was better, Franz versus Enzer? And that was my first exposure, was just reading through this entire thread of comments between Harris and Bernard. Well, as far as the court system was concerned early on, they were the same damn shirt. Right. Um, but just interesting, that was my first exposure to powerlifting, was Franz versus Enzer bench shirt argument. 
Um, and that was a that was like serious. Like people like yeah. were arguing back and forth of which bench shirt was better. Now it seems like people are just like you know, who cares? Um, this is what I use, and yep. I don't know if it matters what you use. But it was a big argument back then. Um, the court said, "quote Court cannot conclude that the open back shirt is substantially the same as the adjudicated shirt or the claim design." If you read through some of the the synopses and opinions of the court. I can only imagine this judge was just fed up with this. Like, as you read it there, it, through there, there the, definitely the tone is like, seriously, what are you guys doing? Now, to be fair, what the court eventually ruled was mm-hmm. that the motion for contempt was denied. Correct. There was no motion to dismiss the entire lawsuit from France at this point. Basically, all that the court was saying was that there's at least a question here on this open back design versus the closed back design. Right. And we're not going to say that Franz is definitively in contempt of court. And I don't, maybe we need a legal expert to, I know that being in contempt is not good. It's, it's not uh, your preferred position, no. Right. But the, the court didn't necessarily dismiss the lawsuit. What mm-hmm. they dismissed was the motion for contempt from Inzer. Um, and it didn't end the lawsuit. No. There's a whole page-long discussion in this 2002 ruling on where the armpit position is on the yep. bench shirt. Yep. Between fl- the open back shirt. Full fucking page a full page on armpit positioning and it's funny because back in the day um Enzer didn't have all the current designs he basically had the letters shirt like it was the 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 hd shirt the high heavy duty shirt mm-hmm. and then it was the extra the epd and like if you look at their bench shirts like uh in the old power from usa's or even on their website like it was all these letters and mm-hmm. those are the only shirts they sold they didn't sell the phenom or the super duper phenom right. or the rajex this was before all that and it was always that you know inzer had the secret armpit technology <laughs> was kind of the joke in the powerlifting online community wow i mean those old inzer bench shirts did bite the freaking hell out of your armpits i can tell you that i can imagine so, yeah, there's a whole page-long discussion on armpits and the position of the armpit and Ernie claiming that because of the way the open back bench shirt is used, the armpit is in a different space. And, and therefore, then, it's not the same. Therefore, it's not the same. And Inzer claiming <laughs> that that's just a, quote, visual trick. Oh, my God. But eventually, in this 2002 so, ruling... So even Inzer said, it's fashion. You wouldn't understand. <laughs> in, uh, in 2002, the court basically ruled that the lawsuit will continue. And... I, as far as we can tell, this is, I don't know if it's the same exact lawsuit, but this is a continuation of the lawsuit going all the way back to 1991. Yeah. Um, June 8th, 2002. The patent has expired. We're done. We out. We're done. And um, then. Well, and we talked about this a little bit already, but that was kind of when Titan support systems really, you know, kind of blew. They, they had that date marked on the calendar. Right. They and they, they, yeah, they, they were big with, they had their Fury bench shirt, which was a really unique design at the time. Um, it had 90-degree angle to sleep. So it wasn't just forward-pointing. It was literally at a 90-degree yeah. angle to your body. Then they came out with the F6, which angled it downward for mm-hmm. people that arched. Um, and they had this material that they'd been using in their suits, which was more like the Rage X material that mm-hmm. Enzer sells now versus the Fina material um, that is on the hardcore suit or the Phenom. That was more the stretchy material that Enzer was using at the time on their shirts. Mm-hmm. And it really took the powerlifting world by storm. And all of a sudden, there was a run on these new Titan bench shirts. The other thing we talked about was that stretchy back that they had. They basically put a singlet material on the back of the shirt, which right. made getting into shirts so much easier to get into if it was closed back. Right. So and if you had this, the 
picture the open back design, you basically just took a, a singlet, connected it, and it's correct. All it's, so it, it operated like an open back bench shirt, right? Kind of. It's not exactly because it didn't have the the big uh, neck, right? Um, and as a result, I would say of Titan coming out with their you know new bench shirt, it was shortly thereafter that Inzer came out with their Ray Jack shirt, mm-hmm. um, and eventually their Phenom shirt. Which led to the suit. The Titan one is called the Fury, and then it just goes, I will call it Rage. Why not? <laughs> yeah, it's totally different. Rage and Fury. And it, and the Rage X and the Rage bench shirt definitely had that stiffer material like mm-hmm. the Titan um, versus the Phenom. And then eventually the Super Duper Phenom had that more stretchy material. Um, anyways, that's that's probably a discussion for another time on bench shirts, but nonetheless, it's somewhat related. Yeah. Um, going it's to the, Aug- the history of the bench shirt. Going to August 8th, 2003. Finally, Ernie files a motion to dismiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of his major claims was that the original patent holder, uh, Necht, yep. was not a co-plaintiff. So what did Inzer do? He, he, just, he just made her a co, co-plaintiff. co with, with her consent, do we assume? Or? Uh, yeah, we would have to assume that, right? you think so, but I mean, you never know. <laughs> and this one is not as in-depth as the original court ruling that we looked at. It mm-hmm. basically said, you know, Motion denied. Yeah, motion denied. You know, there, there's enough. There's And what's important to note is that the court never really ruled on this lawsuit, from what I can tell, no. other than the original consent judgment, which, again, a consent judgment, from what I understand, is means both parties agree to it. Yeah. And, and this, everything that I read through, again, if you read through it, the tone is very much the court being exasperated because this goes all the way back to 1991, you've got, or 1996, I'm sorry, you got the consent judgment. And Well, but it was filed in 91, right. so it does go all the way back. Right. Then. We had this consent judgment in September of 96, and at that point, this is, quote-unquote, worked out. Right, and but you they, guys figure it out from here. Right, and basically, they continue to come back to the court, and the court is, it's kind of like the parents going, listen, you two little assholes, just figure it out, and we're not going to get involved, other than, yeah, you can file these, and you can spend your money if you want, but that's stupid. Just go figure it out yourselves. Be adults. Right, and this is all the way in 2003, after the patent expired. That was another one of Franz's... Uh, Yep. You know, arguments was that, hey, the, the patent is expired now. Yeah. At that time, Enzer was going back for, you know, licensure and, and money from when the patent was still Correct. being enforced. Correct. Um, and there's there's some uh, there's some lore on mm-hmm. some of the things that Enzer did. I, I'm going to go through that in a minute. But yep. uh, we had a discussion with Corey Maselli, who was a Franz lifter back in the mm-hmm. mid-90s. Yep. He claimed, so I'm going to put this in the rumor category. I'm not claiming this happened or not. I've heard this story before. Mm-hmm. He claims um, the summer of 94, a young woman from Texas came and wanted to be an uh, intern at Franz Health Studios. And Corey said that uh, almost immediately, Ernie said she is most likely a spy from Inzer. And he allowed her to, apparently allowed her oh to be an God. intern. And then shortly after there, she just kind of disappeared, got what she needed, and Maselli said she was a pretty good lifter. He saw her at one point on the cover of Powerlifting USA. Do you have a name for this girl? Mm, we didn't have a name. So, okay. again, this is just rumor and innuendo. But I have heard the same story. I hadn't heard this much detail. He said it was the summer of 94 that there was an intern from Texas, young woman, who at least Ernie claimed and then many others thought was a spy from Enzer to see if Ernie was indeed still selling bench shirts. Just I want you to hear all that, folks. We literally work out in front of people. That is our sport. <laughs> we have spies. <laughs> we have lawsuits. Apparently, that, and I had heard that it we happened. We have government collusion. We have everything. <laughs> I, I mean, I had heard that has happened even later in the 2000s, that there was somebody apparently 
you know, who somehow was a spy from Inter. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. So I'm not putting in the category of this is this is not in the court. I can tell you I, that. I get you. That's just, God, it's amazing. So Almost as good as Tiger King. Another Franz lore. <laughs> um, and my wife and I talked about this. And then I, the same thing was reiterated to me with, from Ernie, a little bit. Again, he doesn't remember all the details. Mm-hmm. And Dick Zenzen. Mm-hmm. When I trained at uh, the Franz Power Team and I had trained at Franz Gym in the 05-06 era, mm-hmm. supposedly Ernie had finally come to an agreement to end all these lawsuits with Inzer. And again, this is the patent is expired, but so you're going. It's 25 years. I think Ernie was just done being in the courts. Yeah. And I remember Amy Jackson at the time was kind of against this, but supposedly at this time Ernie had come to an agreement with Inzer to have Inzer manufacture all of Ernie's gear and make his his stuff with his designs mm-hmm. labeled Franz, mm-hmm. but sold through Inzer mm-hmm. and manufactured by Inzer with his you know big factory, and then some kind of agreement so to license like, the Franz name. So kind of like a Jordan brand with Nike. Like it's all Ex- under Franz, yeah. but it's uh, made by them. I do remember Ernie mailing out one of the original lace-up canvas squat suit designs that Kevin Thomas wore as a mm. prototype to Inzer. And many of you might know that now now Enzer sells Leviathan Ultra Pro, which has lace-up sides. Um, And undoubtedly, Maris Sternberg wore the first lace-up canvas squat suit back in 04, 05. Mm -hmm. Um, She took it to Worlds in California and, you know, hit a big squat there. Um, My wife helped lace her into that suit. So that was definitely around back 15 years ago. Um, Now... This never came to fruition. I've never seen Ernie manu- or I've never seen Inzer manufacture sell Franz gear. Um, Maybe but she's going to send a spy to Texas to see if they're using that design stuff. <laughs> but if I had to make a guess, this is just me freestyling guessing. I would guess that they had maybe principally come to an agreement to do this because Ernie was maybe just wanted to semi-retire, mm-hmm. just run his gym, and you yep. know let somebody else use his designs. I'm guessing it probably came down to dollars and cents, and that they couldn't come to detente on how much money Ernie should be getting right. for the utilization of his designs and in his gear. Oh, so $5 a suit doesn't make it? <laughs> and you know what? Uh, we talked about this when we talked, uh, when Howard and I talked with Corey Masella yesterday, mm-hmm. that um, if somebody could make the same style briefs that Ernie sold, the Franz briefs, that would be a great design for training. Yeah. Because it didn't, the, the problem with the Inzer power pants, which are the equivalent now, um, is that the legs are short and the leg openings are super, super tight. It basically uses their their Z-lock. They had this Z-suit that they sold, okay. and it had a Z-leg lock. So the leg openings were like half the size of the, rest of the leg, and it would lock the leg in place to give you more rebound. But if hmm. you're only using this, the brief or the half suit for you know hip support, you don't need something that tight on the leg opening. Plus, you want something with a little bit longer legs and higher waist, which right. the Franz briefs did have right. with that stretchy material. So I mean, it would be a great idea if somebody would want to sell a Franz-style brief um, just for training purposes. So I, as far as we know, that's it, because now Ernie's gym is, has closed. Yep, it burned. Yeah. Um, the Franz gear at that point, you know, he stopped selling it. Um, you know, around that, probably it was in the late 2000s, around that time when we talked about the letter from Ernie in 07. Yep. That was when he was really starting to wind up that gear business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Enzer's continued on, Titan's continued on, Crane to a lesser degree has continued on, um, Metal out of Finland came out at some point. But really, as far as gear manufacturers, there's not a lot of them. No, there's really not. It's a very, well, it's a very niche, niche market. You've got, and... locally, you've got Overkill. Correct. Um, Through to, yeah. 
But, uh, you know, because the IPF has essentially put a moratorium at this point on new gear, mm -hmm. um, you haven't had any new gear manufacturers. It's the same people making basically the same stuff for the last right. five, ten years. Well, Mark huh. Bell did come out with some, uh, some compression pants. Yeah, I mean, you knew that was going to happen. No, we talked about that. It was the week after we talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> so that ends the lawsuit. And what was the result of it? Well, they basically were just in court forever. Ernie, I can tell you, Ernie never stopped selling pet shirts. No. Just, despite any court rulings or agreements he had, he never stopped selling bed shirts throughout. He, at certain points, some people said he changed the sleeve design slightly and it mm -hmm. wasn't as good, but it supposedly was to be in line with the court ruling. Right. Uh, I don't know if Di I believe that or not. Different armpit technology. Right. I don't know that I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I believe that. Um, but supposedly the shirts from the mid nineties were different from the shirts in the late nineties. Okay. Uh, and eventually he was able to go back to the original design when the patent wore out. I don't know. I did have a Franz Denim bench shirt. That was my first bench shirt. Mm -hmm. I didn't get a ton out of it, but uh, that's what I used because that's what everybody used back right. then. Unless so you were buying Ninja shirts. Yes. Well, I can tell you, uh, back in the days when I trained at Franz. You didn't walk in with an Inzer shirt. You didn't walk in with Inzer stuff because, again, he'd been in a lawsuit with Inzer for yep. you know 20 years, 25 years. If you wore Enzer stuff when you trained at Franz Gym, you'd be booted right out of the gym. Yeah. If you wore Crane or Titan, you'd just be made fun of. And Ernie, Ernie told me when I came in with a Titan suit one time, well, I could use that to clean my car. Wow. Uh, and so when you trained at Franz, you used Franz gear. That makes sense. Um, and you definitely did not wear Enzer. No. So, but eventually, even Ernie would say at this point, you know what? It's all over. I don't have any hard feelings for Enzer. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know Enzer, so I don't know if he has any hard feelings for Ernie. Yeah. I'm sure they're not the greatest feelings. Um, I know Amy Jackson had said when she finally met John Enzer, he said, oh, you're the one that I would always talk to at the office. <laughs> and they got along fine. Enzer has gone on to sponsor some of the meets that Amy has run and the yeah. APF has run. And he's been a big sponsor of the WPO, Correct. Um, which is really the only big organization promoting multiply powerlifting, right. um, which we have to assume is the high, pro highest profit margin business for a company like Enzer. I mean, a canvas squat suit has to be a higher profit margin than a t-shirt or a singlet. Uh, very much so. Very much so. So what are the, what's the result of all of this? And here's just, I, I put some open questions. Mm -hmm. um, and we asked this already, but why did the lawsuit continue after Franz handed the IPF judgment over to Enzer? Yeah, that's, that's a big, important question, I think, because it tells me that there's still, it's part of it is, is the ego of, of lifters and those in the lifting community. That's, you know, I, I, I want to win. I want to say, I want it to be, I won, you lost. And that, that's part of what I feel like it and, is. And, and some of the people I talked to had said that that is the philosophy of John Enser is that if he believes he's right and he's, he's got the right position, he's going to ride that to the ground. And yeah, he doesn't. It doesn't matter the cost. He, if he believes he's right, he will continue to go to court to prove that he is right and enforce his uh, intellectual property in this case, which was a licensed patent. Yeah, well, it wasn't his intellectual property; it was something he paid for. But anyway. <laughs> uh, so why? Yeah, why did this continue after? Because that judgment's big. We were talking. Yeah. That's a big judgment. Again, at that time, it was at least two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the only the, guy I can guess is the that the ripple effect is in excess of seven figures. Sure, definitely. You know, so I guess the question would be, um, why did Enzer continue? I, my guess was that maybe at that time Ernie said, sure, I'll stop selling bench shirts. And, of course, Ernie never stopped yeah. selling bench shirts at any time. Well, I think for Ernie, you know, the, the few times I've talked to Ernie, he's a pretty, you know, he's a nice guy. 
pretty logical. I think it was, hey, this is how I make a living, so I'm not. He, he can't stop me from making a living. And Ernie was a, a very shrewd businessman mm-hmm. in his day. Um, yeah. You know, if you talk to Eric Marosher, who we will have on eventually to talk about the we early will. days at the Franz, we will. the Franz Power Team. When he first met Ernie, even into his late 60s, Ernie was just sharp as a tack yeah. and had his thumb on everything that was going on in the gear market and the federations. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't F around when no. it came to his business. I can tell you that. If you talk to him now, he's, you know, he's a kindly old man, yeah. and he is, and he's a nice guy. And even back then, people loved Ernie because of the relationships that he had with people. But when it came to business, you know, he, again, he was shrewd. He was no hold barred. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, what effect did this patent and the enforcement thereof have on the venture market for those, you know, 15 years that it was being enforced? I mean, you put it in here, the, the innovation side. Yeah, I mean, from the Inzer side, I, from what, from talking to people that have been an Inzer sponsored lifter, Inzer is always innovating. He is always has prototypes. He mm-hmm. always has experiments out there. Um, so you have to guess that he was doing something beyond the benchers he had available through the early two thousands. But I'm going to say he didn't because if Titan came in and just took the world by storm, because they they were innovating behind the scenes too. It was very shortly thereafter that the Phenom and Rage and Rage X came out. I can tell you that. Okay. My guess is that Inzer probably felt, well, without the competition element, not why change? Well, yeah, why change? You know, it's my shirts are selling well, you know. Yeah. Um, and at that time, to be fair, um, Poly wasn't as big of a deal. The focus in the late 90s and early 2000s was really on denim. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we talk about all these like Rage X and Phenoms and the Fury and the F6. Those are all polyester shirts. Mm-hmm. When I started in the sport, denim bench shirts were king. Um, and, you know, if you read back to one of the articles where Anthony Clark, the first, arguably the first guy to bench 800, he talks about a unique design of denim bench shirt that he had right. from Inzer. And it was a maroon denim shirt, which in the middle of the, the, the two layers of denim had a poly-coated layer of canvas. So you had denim, you had polyester coating canvas. Interesting. And that's what he used to do his big benches in. Um, and he talks about it. I've never seen that shirt for sale, by the way. Mm. But So you know that Inzer was innovating. He's doing something. And the denim bench shirt was big then, but I think eventually when they were able to find Titan and Inzer and others, were able to find this super strong polyester, you know, a more manufactured material, it did way better, especially in the single-ply market. Yeah, I mean, it. yeah, definitely in the single-ply market. Though single ply is bullshit. <laughs> um, here's a question: Did Inzer have the right to license and stringently enforce his patent? Did he have the right, or was he right? Both. One hundred percent. If you paid money, whatever that was, whether it was ten dollars or ten thousand dollars, for that patent, I, I also would stringently enforce that. I would be very aggressive in, in enforcing that patent because it's mine. Uh, you know, I've got that exclusive licensure and I want to make sure that I'm getting my return on investment. Uh, should it have applied to the bench shirt? This is where I feel like that Ernie may have, you know, misstepped because you know, he should, he should have gone after the patent itself because I think with his design, because again, this was a fashion patent essentially, right? It wasn't based around, uh, you know, sports and strengths like that. I think if Ernie gone after the patent and tried to get a secondary patent or something where it was more sports-specific, he would have been in a better position. 
The problem, if you talk to my partner, Howard Penrose, who's been a expert witness on patent cases, mm-hmm. it's essentially who has the most money often that will win in patent cases because, you know, you could have something that's so super niche and specific. And sure. if one thing is different, if does the patent apply or not? And how do you patents enforced? Um, someone asked him about something that he does with wind technology. And mm-hmm. they said, you know, why didn't you patent that? And he said, well, because then you have to describe it in the patent application. Right. Once it's out there, people are just going to steal it. Yeah. And possibly, you know, then he has to go against a big corporation to prove that he had the patent first. And is that, is that worth the protection that the patent so, provides so you? goes back to stuff that we've talked about before. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Right. And I don't even think Ernie even had, I don't think he even ever thought of going out and getting a patent. I don't think that was ever even his mindset. I mean, we'll talk another time about the monolift, which Ernie did not invent, but he helped, we'll say, redesign and refine. And he actually had possession of the patent for the monolift, Hmm. but yet did not enforce it. Hmm. Because if you noticed back in the early 2000s, we'll say, when Elite FTS first started selling their monolift, Mm -hmm. um, it said mono-style squat rack. It did not say monolith because monolith was a corporation name. It was the monolith corporation. Interesting. And Ernie held the patent for the monolith, but did not enforce it. I don't know that he just wanted to deal with the lawyers because I don't think Ernie really likes lawyers. That's fair. And I think, you know, generally speaking, from my experience with Ernie, his, his focus has always been, you know, growing the sport and generally, you know, figuring out things for the lifters. Sure. And if you, and, definitely. And so, I think, so I think that, you know, that, that is in line with him not enforcing a patent on the monolift. Uh, What's best for the lifters. Right. And and in this case, you know, selling shirts, you know, he's one of the lifters, one, so he's making a living. And two, how's he promoting the sport? On the same token, if you think about it, because if you're a businessman, mm-hmm. do you have to think about what's best for business and what would best eventually serve my customers and my family and my company by utilizing every tool in the toolbox available to business yeah. people? So was his answer right? Uh, they certainly had the. He certainly had the right. Oh, 100% had the right. Was he right to do it? I don't know. That's that's an open question. I would say. Bit of a dick move. Eh, a little. Uh, yeah. But on the same on the same token, I mean, if he truly was the first one to invent the forward pointing sleeve bench shirt under U.S. law, does he have a right to protect that intellectual property for the time period in which he's allowed to? And because someone else had already done the legwork of. Mm-hmm you know, the angles of the sleeves for a patent, and he felt that was at least close enough to what he wanted, that he couldn't file something different. And I'm sure he had some of the best lawyers looking into this. I'm sure. They said, you know what? Even if you file something different, it's not going to be accepted because it's too similar to this existing patent. Right. So here's another question. Was Franz right to supposedly... (laughs) Threatened to bar insert gear from the APF WPC. Or was he just the original gear Nazi before it was cool, like right. the IPF? Right. Uh, <laughs> I would say that probably wasn't right, and I'm a big Ernie Franz supporter. Yeah. But, you know, Ernie's in that unique position where he's not only a gear manufacturer, but he's a promoter of a specific federation, and he sells a competing product to Enzer, who is suing him. Yep. And, you know, one thing that APF WPC has never done is have these kind of gear approval fees. Yeah. Um, but uh, make, make note lifters. Right. But uh, at least in this instance, it, there was, at least according to the court, a threat to do something of that sort. Um, I can tell you that back in the old WPO, not the current WPO, mm-hmm. but the old Kieran Ketterun WPO, there was an instance mm-hmm. where supposedly they were going to have 
gear approval fees. Mm-hmm. And there was one infamous WPO meet where in back in the warm up room, uh, they were apparently putting had like an iron and they were doing iron on WPO designs over Inzer uh Inzer logos because Inzer did not want to agree to be a sponsor at that particular meet. And there was some discussion apparently around Inzer with the at, with the super finals because there was some duct tape over his logos. Well he was a sponsor of Right, but on the on the actual lifters, some of them put duct tape over over the logos. Oh, maybe they didn't want to support Enzo. Correct. Correct. There was uh, that. That's a whole different conversation. Uh, I think some people kind of know what I'm talking about. But yeah, there were a few lifters that uh, duct taped the over uh, the Enzo logo. Okay. Well, yeah, I know Enzo was a big sponsor because his yeah. freaking logo was everywhere. It, yeah, it's on on all the clothes and, that I had. Right, and he was a big sponsor of the current WPO. Correct. Um. So yeah, I, I think Ernie probably was in the wrong in that period. I would um, agree. And there was, even at that time, there was the request of the gear licensing fee, and the lifters really responded poorly to that. Yeah. Um, because if you think about the APF, it all, going back to our discussion last week, it's always kind of been the outlaw federation, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have the type of people that would respond well to that overarching you know, control like the IPF has. And so they would right. respond well to the APF requiring a big you know, gear approval fee. And, and let's be real here. When you look at a squat suit, a bench shirt, a deadlift suit, your wraps, etc., if suddenly your you know stone strength systems uh, gear is no longer approved by your federation, I mean you've got a significant investment in that. And generally right. speaking, powerlifters don't make the most money. Right. Uh, you know, we, definitely not from our sport. It's a hobby, right? So. I would be incensed about that because I've invested all this money in my gear and I know how to use it, et cetera. And now all of a sudden it's just no good. And that's what's happened in the past years with the IPF because yeah. when they started enacting these that's gear approval that fees, lose my mind um, metal, you know, pulled out because they said they couldn't afford it. Yeah. Ricky Crane, even before that pulled out, he said he couldn't, Pioneer. he said he couldn't afford it. Pioneer that just makes belts, which it's, it's ironic that a belt requires a fee. Yeah. Um, I, I would, I could, I, I don't get it with the gear either, but that makes a little bit more sense. But belts is just something so general. Right. Um, I, I guess I could, you could make an argument for squat suits, bed shirts, because you want to make sure it fits the specifications that but, are laid but out. the refs can just check that. I mean. Sure. But you could make, I'm not, I'm, I don't agree with gear approval yeah, fees, but yeah. you could make the argument there's a cost in having somebody, you know, look through the gear and make sure it's approved. Now. Bear in mind, most of the time, people that do that are doing it as volunteers. So right. there's a very low cost because um, it's not like there's it, a. It ain't two hundred fifty grand. I'll tell you that much. Well, there isn't like a chief referee for these organizations that a, that's a full time employee. Right. Um, like I know the USPA has comparatively has a very low mm-hmm. gear approval fee, but they do have a gear approval fee, and that's mm-hmm. their argument is that right. they have to make sure that you know it adheres to their rule book. Um, For instance, you've got Titan has their boss Mm -hmm. suit and their boss material. It essentially is two of their NXG layers laminated together. Okay. So it appears to be one layer. Like Mm -hmm. on a traditional bench shirt squat suit, if you palpate it, you can feel the two different layers. Right. But when you actually cut it in half and look at that boss material that Titan has, and it's similar for metal, Mm -hmm. um, they've got you know, two layers, and in their case, they've got it laminated together with a very thin layer of basically foam mm-hmm. between the two layers of material. And so it almost appears like it's a, a single layer, but in reality, it's two layers of materials basically glued together. Gotcha. So, you know, 
you can make an argument that, hey, there's a need to evaluate some of that stuff and a, a low cost, you know, for us to evaluate material. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, it's in the thousands for the USP, yeah, USPA. It's not, it's not a six figure. It's in anybody. the hundreds of thousands for the IPF. Yeah. So anything else, Spain, I'm on this crazy, long Enzer versus Franz lawsuit. What's that, crazy is we've probably left out more stuff than we actually talked about today. There's so much. That sure. Yeah. This is the most research I've done for an episode. But to be fair, I didn't go back to the courthouse and request the original 1991 right. lawsuit and right. other court proceedings and get the letters. And unfortunately... Not that we could have to come out of the bunker right now. But. Right, exactly. I'm, the courthouses are closed. So even yeah. if we wanted to, we couldn't. Um, the only stuff we found was was accessible online. Right. Um, because at a certain point, they didn't scan stuff into the computer. If you want to get old, old court documents, yeah, this, this you have to go request um, the actual paper copies. Because right. the only time that it was scanned, if it's super old, is when it's... Uh, and I'm forgetting the term, but it's like those, like the the groundbreaking type cases. I'm sure what that's something called. that'll be referenced, right? Exactly. And so, the, and this is not something that's going to be referenced. This is a argument between two adult men about a bench press shirt. Exactly. <laughs> it's really though. Um, it is a lawsuit like the Franz IPF lawsuit. It's mm-hmm. it's a lawsuit that sort of defined, you mm-hmm. know, an era and a part of powerlifting. You Correct. know, this lawsuit, for good or for bad defined the use of bench press shirts in powerlifting for 15 years. Yeah. And yeah, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of Franz bench shirts out there. There are. During this whole He's, lawsuit, I can tell you. He was selling them. He never stopped selling them. Uh, but, you know, the other companies, they didn't want to deal with the lawsuits like Ernie did. And, I mean, Ernie probably spent a lot of money on lawyers. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you, as a defendant in a lawsuit – you know, you really kind of have the upper hand because you can just keep filing motions and keep filing extensions mm-hmm. and, you know, you can keep going through more discovery. And, you know, it is, it's not really, in a, in a civil lawsuit, it's not really, you know, innocent until proven guilty per se. Um, but it's who's more right. Right. It is who's more right, but proving who's right, the courts, they really don't want to do. They really would rather that you work out they yeah. would rather that private parties work out their own issues themselves. Right. Like adults. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, if you look through everything involved, it, it's quite a lawsuit. Um, it is quite the intricate weaving of, you know, as you said, powerlifting and ego. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, legal proceedings and a fashion patent that surrounded all of it. It just blows my mind that, that you know somebody thought, "Hey, I'm going to put sleeves in the front of a T-shirt, basically," because they, they 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 weren't thinking of this. One hundred percent not. And and this turns into this you know nearly two decades saga between these two guys who you know I mean really are some of the pioneers of of the sport with you know Inzer with his gear and you know what he's done because I mean Inzer gear is everywhere. Well, yeah, and that's one thing I was going to bring up is that now you know. At that time, you could argue that Enzer maybe wasn't innovating as much as they could because right. they didn't have to. But if you look at, especially when you talk about multiply gear, mm-hmm. all the biggest lifts for the most part are done in Enzer gear. They're all done in a form of the Leviathan canvas squat suit. Yep. And pretty much all of them now have been done in a super duper phenom. Right. In the past, there was many done in the old Rage X material, which is much harder to use. Rage. In single ply, it's a little bit more split between Titan and Enzer, mm-hmm. I would say. But, you know, if, when it comes to the all-time world records... Multiply, Inzer's it. It's mostly been set in Inzer. You know, you yep. think of Donnie Thompson, Dave Hoff. Yep. You know, we talked about Ryan Kennelly. Um, 
I know that he at one point was using overkills. Same with Scott Mendelson, although I think he maybe did some of his better lifting when he was in Inzer, mm -hmm. arguable. Um, but, but the couple times I've been in uh, a multiply shirt, it's an Inzer shirt. Yeah, I mean, as far as multiply goes, Inzer is king. Yeah. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, it's something that he's a pioneer when mm -hmm. it comes to that stuff. No, I think Ernie's also a pioneer. Again, he, he want, I mean, he's, he's the I godfather mean, of power. Right. He was the one that came up with that lace-up canvas squat suit, but was he able to standardize it and market it the way that Enzer has? No, definitely not. Enzer's, no. you know, been able to standardize that um, and market it and sell it as a product, which is, you know, a much better product from a business standpoint than the totally custom canvas squat suit right because you can sell four or five sizes and fit everybody as opposed to you know custom making the one original one yeah right the original canvas squat suit that almost always had to be adjusted once you got it because right. it was very hard to get an exact fit and then if you gain or lose weight forget it yeah Ugh, gross with that, Bane, uh, next week we have an interview scheduled with uh, the West Side vs. the World film producer, Michael Fahey. Michael Fahey. I'm excited for this one. This is going to be fun. We talked to him at the WPO Semis, and he offered to be on the show. So we wanted to set it up during this quarantine time while we have a little extra time. Yep. And uh, we'll chat with him about uh, the WPO, about his uh, film, West Side vs. the World, mm -hmm. about future powerlifting film productions he's working on. Mm -hmm. And maybe what else, anything else he wants to talk about. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about the training stuff he's doing. I don't know if you've been watching that. He yeah, I have been watching that. that. Um, he's actually got a really interesting career. I got about 15, 20 minutes to talk to him uh, in the way in line of the WPO uh, when I was there with Jan. And, okay. And uh, really interesting career. I think we'll have to bring some of that up because there's, there's a model he's talking about from his past lives that he is incorporated into, you know, the WPO and powerlifting that – I think is, uh, is fascinating. And if he's willing to share that, I think it's going to really get people excited about the future of, you know, the sport and specifically of the WPO production. Cool. With that, this is Eric Stone signing out. Strength and Anger.